Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week, we look at the federal election. Can the coalition turn it around? What should their platform look like? We check back into the 13-year saga of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, and we ask if Israel Folau would have been better off if he'd had his social media posts pre-approved by the Australian Human Rights Commission. My name is Chris Berg from RMIT University, and I'm a fellow at the IPA. I'm sitting in the big chair while my co-host Scott Hargraves is away. I'm joined by IPA Research Fellow Andrew Bushnell, who will be playing the Chris Berg role today. Hi, Andrew. Jeez, Chris, uh, yeah, it's a pretty easy role to fill. I just have to pretend like I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> and Andrew, congratulations on your first appearance on Media Watch on Monday. Yeah, that was pretty good. They had a go at me about uh, electric vehicles because apparently I'm too stupid to understand that uh, <laughs> the Liberal Party has the more or less the exact same policy as the Labor Party on electric vehicles. Of course, I do understand that. Um, and I'm not exactly happy about it. This is the implication, <laughs> the implication that because the Labor Party has a stupid policy, the Liberal Party's policy is not equally stupid is quite bizarre. <laughs> We're also joined by the IPA Director of Research, Dan Wilds. Good morning, Dan. G'day, everyone. And IPA historian and beard enthusiast, Dr. Zach Gorman. Hi, Zach. Howdy. So stick around for our final segment on books and culture, of course, where we will look at a, a couple of podcasts, one on the history of England and another one on movie soundtracks. We'll revisit a Ken Burns documentary classic and we find out what Andrew watched on Netflix this week. If you're listening on iTunes or any other podcast platform, do not forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Not only is it good for our ego, but that's what the algorithms that control our lives insist upon. So first up, the federal election. As we all know, the federal election has been called for May 18. Both parties are running around the country trying to mount an argument for their vision of Australia. Dan, what is their vision of Australia and what should it be? Uh, well, their vision of Australia is not to have a vision of Australia, I think. Um, <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting is actually the Labor do have a vision of Australia. So you just mentioned electric vehicles, which is a great example. Now, I think it's a terrible policy, but at least they have some kind of vision for what the future of manufacturing is in this country. Um, the coalition doesn't actually appear to have any specific vision on that or a range of other issues. Um, in terms of what their vision should be, it's just something uh, rooted very deeply in um, a number, number of the important you know, philosophical underpinnings of, of, of Australia and, and our freedoms, like freedom of speech, free enterprise, uh, parliamentary democracy. And, and to support that, uh, we put out a list of uh, 20 policies to fix Australia. Uh, we put that out at the end of last week, and it was covered today uh, in a range of uh, forums. Sydney Morning Herald had a story on it and a variety of other areas. And um, I'll just run through a couple of those um, policies. Before you do, I actually, so I was looking at the um, uh, document when you released it this week, which I really like, and um, it opens with this short statement of lib liberal philosophy, which um, I think is really important. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll just read a couple of lines from it. Um, it's, it's, it's short, but it's really, really compelling, I think. So you open by arguing that individual freedom is the animating theme of liberalism. Government exists and hold their legitimacy only insofar as they protect the economic, social and political freedoms of all Australians. Then you go through a few aspects of that economic freedom, um, the free enterprise system, freedom of speech and, and so forth. How, how uh, I agree with this, um, uh, this statement of principles, and I think it's really compelling, but how did you think through those liberal principles as they might relate to the political parties and the Liberal Party platform, for instance? Um, well, the the actual uh, philosophical statement is 
an attempt to sort of remove it a little bit from the day-to-day politics, sort of say, well, we need to have some kind of coherent intellectual framework for, like you're saying, what is the vision, what is the future of Australia? And I think it really comes down to our heritage in terms of our, our freedoms and our parliamentary democracy, which I see as being received from a very long and proud tradition. And typically the Liberal Party does see itself as the custodian of those traditions. Now, whether or not um, it follows them, it sort of, Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But it is important to remind people and to remind the Liberal Party that they are really, um, they do have a sort of an obligation and responsibility to to pass down these important traditions and these important ideas to future generations. So uh, when we put out a list of policies, like we have a list of policies, anyone could put out a list of policies. But what's important is there's some kind of framework uh, to those policies and some kind of reason why you'd actually, it's not just a random scattering of 20 there's a variety. I mean, it relates to anything from the High Court to the Paris Climate Agreement to lower taxes. You might think that's fairly random, uh, but they all fit very nicely within the, I think, a general framework of freedom and liberalism. A- Andrew, why don't we see this sort of first principles reasoning from either side of politics, from from Labor or the Coalition or, or even many of the minor parties? Well, I think one side of politics, so the Labor-Green side of politics, arguably doesn't have to... Uh, come election season, spell out their first principles because their first principles are kind of ubiquitous in the culture. <laughs> so they don't really have this this onus on them. Um, a lot of their guiding assumptions are the guiding assumptions of the media, of the universities and things like this. So they don't actually have um, a real burden here. But on the centre-right, um, I think there is more of a burden. I, I think we should be clearer about what it is that we hope to achieve. I think I've, I've mentioned on this show previously that I do think that, uh, in a sense, ideology is kind of adaptive to modern mass participatory democracy in that people would like you to have a story, even if they know that you're not going to be super consistent in applying it, um, even if they suspect that um, you know the messy world of politics will mean that this will have to change in its application. I think um, people would like you to have a story. And I think the Liberal Party has uh, devolved in recent years um, into more of a sort of a Peronist party where it is, uh, instead of, in place of ideology, it's really a system of patronage where they say, we're really good at elections. If you support us, we'll win elections and then we'll be in a position to help you in government. That's not a very inspiring story. At least it's transparent. <laughs> <laughs> it's honest. I think it is something that Australian liberalism has lost. So in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, you had people like George Reid really going to first principles um, when they were running election campaigns, really arguing for freedom from the ground up, for free trade and these sorts of things. But in the various compromises that the non-Labor parties have made in creating the Nationalist Party and then the UAP and then the Liberal Party, a lot of that has been worn away um, and it's really for the detriment of Australia's political culture. A lot of um, what made Australia great, what um, produced some of the greatest periods of economic growth in Australia, a lot of that has been lost. But Zach, I mean, should we expect, is it asking too much to expect from a political party, a organisations that specifically designed to take power in a political system? Is it, are we asking too much that they do have a coherent system of ideas? No, because I think it's necessary, particularly um, with something like liberalism, something like freedom, that's often a bit difficult to sell to the electorate on an issue-by-issue basis. Um, Why shouldn't we throw an extra $100 billion at health or education, these sorts of things? If we're arguing every time just on the issue itself, then I think we're going to lose the argument. 
But if we argue why freedom is good, why small government and enterprise are good as a broad vision, then we set a platform on which to argue these individual issues one at a time. But, but Dan, I mean, people want a few hundred billion dollars more in health and education, right? Yeah, they do. I, th- I think I think the when you talk about vision and, and, and uh, thoughts about the future, I think what comes to my mind is a lot of these ideas around freedom and limited government, um, while we would see them as sort of being good in and, of them, in and of themselves, I think we need to do better at actually communicating them as a part of a broader vision or strategy. They're, they're more of a means to an end rather than an end to themselves. So I go back to the example of, of say, manufacturing and electric vehicles. Now, um, we know that one of the main reasons why, say, the manufacturing sector has been in decline and why heavy industry has been in decline, partly that's just an underlying economic story of transition, but it's also partly because of very bad government policy, whether it's to with red tape, regulation, the active discouragement of the resources sector, um, the high electricity prices that come with um, with interventions for renewable energy and the Paris Climate Agreement, which drive up the cost of energy and have a disproportionate effect on industry, we can actually tell a very positive story about the future of manufacturing in Australia, which is like we envision, you know, you could say we want Australia to be a place that still makes things. You can still have this kind of very kind of pragmatic approach to saying what Australia will be in the future um, and then say one of the mechanisms, one of the means to doing that is actually having less regulation, having um, cheap energy prices and things like that. So one of the things we need to get better at on the right is actually beating the left at having a vision. The left always have a vision. MBN, Gonski, NDIS, these are all visions that they have. Um, and that's not really offset on the right in any meaningful way. I think it's interesting to mention there, like, a, say, education. So because I mentioned just before that um, the Liberal Party sometimes at least presents itself in a way of, like, if we have power, we can help people. But then they, the people or things that we support. But there's an argument that they arguably don't there's an argument that they don't actually do that, right, once they're in government. So in the education sector, you have Labor is very strongly in favour of um, a gradual equalisation of uh, funding across schools and things like this because they've diagnosed that there's some sort of disparity in performance between disadvantaged schools and not disadvantaged schools, things like that. And they have this real vision of, like, equality across the electoral system. And part of that is to reduce funding for... Uh, private schools and for Catholic schools. Now, on the other side of that argument, you could easily come out, right, and say, no, if you vote for us specifically, we will be supporting these schools more heavily because, and then that's where your story comes in. Why are we in favour of private education? Why are we in favour of uh, religious education, things like that. So, Dan, um, I, I was looking through the 20 Policies to Fix Australia document, which has the wonderful subtitle of 15 Policies the Coalition Should Implement But Will Not and 5 Policies They Should Not Implement But Will. Um, uh, there's a couple of really interesting ones that I'd sort of um, be interested in 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 you talking us through. So um, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of, you know, sell the ABC and those sorts of things. So those are specific pieces of public policy. But there are a few structural ones. So uh, number seven was double the size of the House of Representatives and halve the size of the ministry, which I think is a really interesting idea and I'd love to hear you talk about. Yeah, so the main motivating factor for that is, is twofold. One is um, increasing the size of the House of Representatives would fairly straightforwardly mean that you have more electorates and that means there'll be fewer people or fewer voters in any given electorate. And the idea is that um, any any individual person will therefore have a relatively louder voice. They'll be able to have more effect on the margins and so that should make people more engaged. Um, and it's also wedded to the idea of localism, that we want to have 
um, more electorates uh, that are closer to the people. And so one way you do that is just by simply increasing the size of the House of Representatives. Um, the idea behind having fewer um, uh, members of parliament in the ministry um, is because we don't really have a culture in this country of backbenchers actually speaking out. You'll see in the United Kingdom, for example, Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is an exemplar of this, someone who's on the backbench, who's been a very staunch critic of, of Theresa May, the Prime Minister, and his own party's position on Brexit, as an example. Uh, but that's sort of par of the course that you have there and also in the United States. Now, I accept they have a different um, political system to what we have, but it's it's very common to have different factions that will speak out against the establishment view on, on different issues. So I think that's important because what it means is that there's a, 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 a broader debate. Um, it means that you have... There's a lot of very talented people on the backbench, particularly in, in the Liberal Party, uh, but whenever you see them on, on TV or where, whenever you read an article, it's just the party line. And I think that's very disappointing. So um, opening it up, um, I think, would be great for... Uh, broader debate and great for our democracy. Um, I know that Zach has a very astute observation about why, however, the implementation of that may somewhat be limited. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Greg Malouche and I did a history article on the Nexus Clause, which is just about the only thing in the entire Australian Constitution that we didn't borrow from everything else. Everyone who was writing the Australian Constitution was basically a Burkean. They wanted to have things that were proven to work when they were put into action. But unfortunately, one of the things they had to do when they were combining a federal system with responsible government um, was make certain compromises. And one of those compromises was the Nexus Clause, which requires that the House of Representatives is only ever double the size of the Senate. So to increase the size of the House of Representatives, you also need to increase the size of the Senate. Um, there are certainly some arguments to be made that that might not be necessarily a bad thing. It will increase the crossbench. It will mean that there's going to be more diverse views being represented. Um, but it does create political obstacles. And it is the reason why we have only ever increased the House of Representatives twice since Federation, if you don't count the territories. What was their rationale for that? Do we do we know? Or um, So there's three, there's three reasons why they did it. One was deliberately to keep the House of Representatives small. They didn't want a rapid expansion in the number of seats. This was just when they had first introduced paid members and they were a bit worried about paying too many members. Um, another one was the dignity of the Senate. Um, so there was an argument by the smaller states that if you let the House of Representatives grow exponentially and the Senate stays the same, that just because it was so much smaller, um, it would lose its respect. It would sort of be overridden overall. And what really locked it into place firmly was when they introduced the joint sitting provision. Um, so when, after a double dissolution, you need to have the House of Representatives and the Senate sitting together jointly, you need to keep them in the same proportion if you're going to have that federal idea where the smaller states are still represented. Could, could you get around this by... Um more states, <laughs> <laughs> or by or by for joint sittings, just allocating more votes to certain people to balance it out. So if you had a larger house, you just say each Senate vote counts for four or something. I'm, there's definitely <laughs> ways to get around it. Um, it's at least two decades of High Court cases in that proposal. <laughs> <laughs> the problem, the problem is, um, so it's been proposed by both sides of politics to get rid of the Nexus Clause and be able to increase the size of the House of Representatives. They tried to do that in 1967. The forgotten referendum was on this issue. 
Um, but basically, a populist cry of no more politicians was enough to resoundingly defeat that. The second point there that you mentioned about uh, their fear that a small Senate would lose prestige is actually bizarre and not precedented, right? I mean, talking about um, looking at overseas examples for the model of the Constitution, did it escape their knowledge that you know the Senate is in the United States is what the the greatest dem- democratic house in the history of the world or whatever they call it? <laughs> well, you know they have some name for it that they. Well, this is where the compromise between federalism and responsible government came in. So the United States Senate has certain powers, like trials of impeachment, appointing certain officials, all these sorts of things that you can't give to a. Um, responsible government senate because the power has to be in the lower house if you're going to have responsible government so they argued that the american example wasn't wouldn't hold true in australia if you had responsible government as well the um another interesting one and we'll just go through this quickly in the um list of 20 things that the coalition shouldn't shouldn't do is um, number 13 so that's introduce a one in two out approach to reduce red tape again this is a sort of structural story as well isn't it dan it is a structural story. Um, we know that red tape is a, a serious issue. We've done research um, finding that red tape costs $176 billion a year and foregone economic output. Um, and we know that basically every single government since probably the history of Federation um, has promised to cut red tape. Um, very few of them ultimately do cut red tape because it becomes all too hard, all too difficult. Um, and a lot of the attempts to cut red tape are, are typically really marginal, low-hanging fruit that don't really have a lot of significant um, long-term economic advantages to doing so. So one of the things that uh, we find by studying what they've done abroad, particularly in uh, British Columbia, a province in, um, in in Canada and other other parts of the United States, is to implement these kind of structural approaches to, to setting up um, a system that automatically basically reduces red tape. And so one of the most successful approaches, and, and the Trump administration has done this to great effect, is to have, uh, you've got to get rid of two regulations or two somethings, whatever you want to define it as, uh, for every new one regulation or new you know, you know new restrictiveness clause that you, you implement. So um, I think we need to move beyond the idea of, of, of having specific things to get rid of. We should you know promote specific red tape items to get rid of when we think that they ought to be gotten rid of. Uh, but setting up these longer-term institutional approaches to getting sustainable reductions in red tape is uh, the best way to go. So um, uh, moving on, WikiLeaks. Julian Assange, Andrew, was dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy where he has been living, boarding, whatever you want to describe it, for nearly seven years. Um, Should we be concerned about this? Is this a threat to freedom of speech, as Assange's lawyer has pointed out, or or like Peter Grest, the Australian journalist who was incarcerated in Egypt for, for a couple of years, wrote recently, Assange is not a journalist. And um, uh, we shouldn't be overly worried about this uh, uh, this problem. Should we be concerned, Andrew? The same people who now say he's not a journalist were giving him journalism prizes in <laughs> living memory. Um, but to answer your question, I mean, I think it, it comes down to whether you accept Assange's narrative about his prosecution being a political one or not. So what he was actually arrested for um, once Ecuador opened the, the doors is he was arrested for absconding from bail in the United Kingdom, and he's wanted, or he was wanted, on charges of rape in Sweden, which is not a political crime. Now, he, uh, his argument is that it's been ginned up against him um, so that he can be extradited to the United States where he will be prosecuted uh, for 
uh, alleged cyber crimes, which is his participation in the hacking of the Pentagon. Um, now, his participation in this is somewhat debatable. Um, there's a question about whether um, he actually participated in it ahead of time or whether it was after the fact of hacking. Um, but it's interesting that the Ecuador Ecuador lost patience with him after eight years. Um, <laughs> he sounds like a terrible rumor. And the latest reports are quite funny about that because they lost patience with him because he was a bad house guest, was more or less how they described him. And they describe him as walking around in his underwear and even skateboarding down the halls late at night. <laughs> so here's Julian Assange, political prisoner, cat in his arms with a little tie around its neck, skateboarding half naked around the Ecuadorian embassy. That's, I don't know if this, so I don't know if it's a huge issue or not. <laughs> I mean, but, but I mean, the, the, the strong form argument in Assange's defense is that he was hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy because he was concerned that he would immediately be extradited to the United States. The moment he left the Ecuadorian embassy, the US government immediately put out an extradition order. Now, we don't know how that's going to play out, of course, and one of the arguments made um, years ago, seven years ago, um, was that there would uh, the US, sorry, the, um, uh, the British government wouldn't allow him to go to Sweden if he would be immediately sent to the United States. So we don't know how that's going to play out. But, but I mean, he was right. Wasn't he? Uh, in that sense, he was hiding from a US extradition order. The moment he gets out, he's subject to that extradition order. Is that a case that, you know, Julian Assange, the paranoid guy that it is? is o- only, if we, only if we accept the idea that what he did shouldn't be a crime, right? So if, we, if, if you start at the premise of what he did was a crime, then of course the United States wants to prosecute him for that crime. Of course they will ask their ally, the United Kingdom, to extradite him so he can be prosecuted for that crime. The question turns on whether what he did is something that should be criminal. Uh, And what he did, what we know he did for sure, is publish a whole bunch of classified documents that were clearly in the public interest, um, a number of them, but also clearly contained uh, security risks, not just for the United States, but for, uh, it is alleged, particular individuals named in those documents. So that's... That's the debate. Now, I think we have on one hand a legitimate concern from the United States, which is national security. I'm uh, probably a little bit more uh, of a believer in the national security restrictions on what journalists can do because um, I did work for a period of time at the Department of Defence and I and you do, know all our secrets. And now. I do <laughs> think that there are... Well, even a, even a low-level functionary like me uh, learn things that there's a reason why they're not widely known. Uh, And I think that, um, you know, Assange is up against that. Now, the United States, obviously, there's a question of overclassification and what the balancing test should be for the public interest. Um, But in my view, um, it's pretty rational what the United States have done um, in trying to extradite him and prosecute him for this. So, Dan, Julian Assange put a whole bunch of classified documents, some of which were... um, had public interest, some of which may have revealed some secrets, some of which were just, you know, talking amongst diplomats. Does this, is is Assange a journalist? Does it matter whether he's a journalist? Should we, should we care about this distinction or is this a, is this a speech versus security question? Uh, in terms of your question about is he a journalist and I'm not sure that really matters because um, what a journalist is today and what it used to be is very different. I think we have citizen-based journalism, if you want to call it that. I mean, anyone with an iPhone can record and report on something 
does that make them a journalist or not? So I don't really know the answer to that, but the, the distinguishment between journalist and non-journalist isn't clear. So I don't think it really matters whether he's a journalist or not. Um, I tend to err a little bit on Andrew's side in, in, in a general sense about the importance of, of national security. I accept that people and governments use national security in a variety of other guises to limit speech of their enemies a lot of the time. And we always need to be aware of that and look through what their true motivations are. But as a matter of principle, I don't have, have particular issues with um, having limitations on speech on the grounds of, of national security. How do we make that decision though? So so one of the things that occurred in the Assange case was that the um, WikiLeaks actually provided when they were working with more mainstream media organisations like The Guardian and and I think The New York Times as well, they actually provided the Defence Department and the State Department with the um, what they were going to leak and both the Defence Department and the State Department, if memory holds, um, declined to go through it with them. Um, and so, you know, the, the question is, and, and just say, no, this is illegal, definitely don't do this, you, you can't do it. Um, now, there's a sort of game theory problem there. If you offer to help someone redact documents that they're going to release, then, well, the next person's going to do precisely the same thing. But, um, uh, Zach, should we be concerned about the secrecy problem? Uh, should we be concerned when someone leaks uh, should we so should we be concerned from a public policy or philosophical perspective when someone leaks such a large number of classified, though not necessarily all sensitive, government documents? Well, it's obviously a difficult question. I think some of the there's some good things that WikiLeaks did. There's some bad things that they did. Um, they were involved in a lot of basically doxing people. So they famously published the names and addresses of 13,000 members of the British National Party and certain things that aren't necessarily in the public interest. Um, The other point I would like to bring up is that everyone here is sort of um, taking for granted the sort of the idea, the concept of extradition. And I would say as people with libertarian leanings, we have to be very cautious towards this idea of extradition. The last thing that we want as um, libertarians is a sort of global police state where the government from one area can get you no matter where else you are in the world. We want opportunities for people to opt out. We want opportunities for diversity of views. We're in favour of things like tax havens. Extradition is a bit inherently anti-libertarian. That's an interesting one. I, I, Andrew, I want, I, I want you to have a go at that. I mean, <laughs> listeners can't see the puzzled look on my face. <laughs> Surely, they can hear it though. <laughs> surely, surely, though, surely, though, countries like the United States and the United Kingdom have enough in common. Uh, for example, I mean, on this particular issue, um, Australia, United States, the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, and New Zealand all share intelligence all the time. So we all have the exact same interest in the protection of this intelligence. Surely, states, sovereign states, can recognise interests that they share and then cooperate on legal terms to make sure that someone who is, uh, you know... All I'm hearing is one world government from you. Set aside, aside, you know, what? set aside Assange specifically. I mean, this this old-fashioned idea of, like, um, you know, someone murders someone and it's like, get across the border and then then I'm safe. Um, I'm in Luxembourg, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't support that because I think we can... I mean, part of what a sovereign state does is negotiate with other sovereign states about shared interests and reciprocity. Uh, I don't think that that is world government so much as it is an exercise of sovereignty and keeping track 
of your own citizens when they do bad things to your other citizens. Oh, and the and the extradition power is not absolute. So lots of states will decline to extradite people to the United States because of the existence of the death penalty. And and a lot of states will decline to send people to Russia or to, to, to China, obviously, um, specifically because they've got moral objections. And and that that those moral objections have, have come up and been really um, uh, tense, particularly with Australia-Indonesia relationships um, around drug uh, drug smuggling, the idea that the Australian Federal Police might tip off in certain circumstances or work with the Indonesian police um, to let them know that Australians are importing drugs into Indonesia, therefore, uh, uh, you know, tipping off the Indonesians that there might be someone that can be executed there. So, you know, it, it is a contra- controversial and major issue. And this, and this well might be another one of those because, as Andrew's um, suggested, some of the claims in the extradition, or at least the extradition order for Julian Assange, seem a bit tangential or tenuous about how deeply Assange helped Chelsea Manning do the hacking. Um, I've seen some of the transcripts of their conversations, their chat conversations between Manning and Assange, and it does look like Assange is really, really talking himself up or had, some, in some cases, no intention to help. Just it seemed to- like he was kind of... Um- egging her on a little bit, like, this is great, keep going, or, or something like that, in that vein. Um, whether that amounts to a conspiracy or not, um, I don't know. But I think it's, you know, this is an issue where you get this, you know, national security on one hand, which is a, an interest of, of the people collectively, um, versus Assange, his rights uh, to freedom of speech, um, and then the rights of citizens to be informed about what their governments are doing. It's probably where a, a dialogue that is rooted entirely in individual rights kind of falls down a little bit because the national security thing, you can you can conceive it of as, you know, your right to be kept safe by your government or something like that, but it's, it's actually much more basic in the sense of why do we have government secrecy about some things? It's actually just to maintain a strategic advantage. It's really as simple as, almost as primitive as that. If, if we know something that our enemies don't know, we have an advantage. And so it's not really that the, the question of individual rights doesn't so enter into it so much because it's just a contest of, of brute force. It's just that's what the information exists for is our ability to deploy force against our enemies and protect ourselves. Well, so even more important, I think we would agree, the national security is the brand of Rugby Australia. And Israel Folau, the um, famous Wallabies and Waratahs rugby star, now faces termination of his contract for an Instagram post that he popped up um, earlier this week. I'll, I'll read some of it. Warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheist idolaters, hell awaits you, only Jesus saves. Rugby Australia now argues that this is a breach of the code of conduct that he signed up to as a rugby player. This is not the first instance of this for Israel Folau, um, but it's a really interesting case because it it, it crosses a bunch of um, really challenging debates that we have. So Israel Folau, obviously, as a rugby player, voluntarily signed up to this code of conduct, and um, the code of conduct is enforceable in some way. But on the other hand, I'm really uncomfortable with a world in which organizations, companies, our employers can require us to suppress our own political and religious views. There's something deeply uncomfortable and illiberal 
about that. Andrew, where do we draw the line? Does contract win? Does speech win? What yeah, on the on the contract side of it, it is, I think, relevant um, that last last year, the first time this issue came up after he said something in public that they didn't like about his religious beliefs, they actually strengthened. It was reported at the time that they had strengthened the provision in his contract that would restrict his social media use. So he basically got warned and then he signed up again to a contract that was quite explicit, we're led to believe, about what he could and couldn't say. But on the other hand, you know, he's a professional rugby player. His options in Australia for his work, uh, his ability to leave this particular employer and go to another employer, quite limited. Um, and they're using <laughs> Poor their... oppressed Israel <laughs> No, no, but it, it's true because it, it, when... Um, and you and I have talked about this, this idea of exit being important to liberalism. Israel Folau's exits are actually limited because his career is very specific. Um, there's no... I mean, obviously, he's, he's quite wealthy at this point, so he won't die destitute if he manages his money correctly. But I do think it's relevant that he is... Uh, you know, he, his ability to live as himself, this is the interesting thing for me, his ability to live as himself is being restricted by this in the same way that is being alleged that he's doing to others. So the idea is that in particular in that list of people that he offended, he offended homosexuals and that um, if you use that kind of language like he used, you're actually contributing to a world in which they can't live with dignity. Um, But if the whole question boils down to identity... Uh, Israel Folau's religious beliefs are, from his perspective, entirely as identity-forming as any other claim that anyone listed in his meme might make. And so if it boils down to you know, the expression of individual dignity and you know, our ability to live as ourselves in society, I, then I think his religious beliefs are really important. Well, I'd just like to further unpack that. So I'm pretty passionate about this because as a proud New South Welshman, I'm a Tars fan and we were actually doing quite well this season. What's a Tar? Waratahs, <laughs> the New South Wales rugby team in the Super Rugby. Okay. Um, but when it comes to identity, I think another is the most part, Melbourne podcast. You can listen to. <laughs> another, another aspect to this is the extent to which the left and the people who have been attacking Israel Folau are throwing cultural sensitivity out the window. So Israel Folau was born in Australia, but he is of Tongan heritage. And I know for a lot of um, Pacific Islanders, Christianity is a defining part of their culture and identity. It's really, um, we're one of the, Australia's one of the only countries in the region where God isn't explicitly the sort of central theme of the national anthem. I once played rugby with a predominantly Pacific Islander slash Maori team and we would have a collective prayer on the field before each game. It's very much a part of the entire cultural identity of a lot of these people. But it's got a problem from Rugby Australia's brand as well. So, so Dan, where, where do you fall on this? So contract law or, or liberal speech? Uh, speech more so. And I think all the takes here have been fantastic, and that's why we need this podcast because you won't yeah, get this. Yeah. It's true, you won't get this anywhere else. <laughs> uh, but I, I thought you put it well at the start, which is, you know, from my reading of it, uh, Rugby Australia has every right to fire him. It's, it seems fairly clear that he's breached his contract, which he's voluntarily signed. But I, I just, I really think this is just not Australia, in all honesty. <laughs> it's just not the Australia that I grew up in. It's say what you want and get on with your life. I, I don't really understand why people are getting so upset about this. And you mentioned, Andrew, that um, homosexuals were 
offended. Were they though? I mean, I don't know. I think this was kind of a concocted outrage by primarily by Qantas. And this is the other point I wanted to make was, well, I'll, I'll just finish that first thought, sorry, that, which is that um, it's always hard to know how much people really care. I mean, we have examples of um, people with like 300 followers on Twitter saying, oh, you have a, this was done to uh, Pizza Hut. Someone with like 300 followers on Twitter tweets at Pizza Hut saying, hey, you guys are advertising on Sky After Dark, which is some right-wing conspiracy. Um, you know, you've got to pull your advertising. And they responded and pulled their advertising. So it's like one person with 300 followers who's a complete nutcase when you go through their tweets. It's, um, it's hard to know whether this is representative of a broader outrage or even outrage by homosexuals. I mean, what about the fornicators? What about – they weren't outraged. <laughs> well, was, the next, the next <laughs> day – We don't know. I mean, he slandered, he slandered the entire country. And the drugs and, and most, are like, hey. And most people are like – Okay, cool story. Um, you know, <laughs> see you playing on Saturday, mate. I mean, that's the attitude we should have to it. And I don't really, I just, I no, just that's think, right. Yeah. That, that's right. And the, uh, I think there's a huge issue that we um, wildly overstate potential offence to certain community groups, mm. and it's it's like it's like, uh, all communities are easily captured by one or two spokespeople. Um, and you can announce yourself as the spokesperson for a the environment or just a group or uh, I mean, this is very common in um, ethnic community organisations. Somebody decides yeah. that they speak for the Maltese, and therefore, you know, this is the Maltese perspective. But of course, there's no poll, there's no yeah. there's no democratic structure, and there's uh, no there's no structure around who's actually genuinely offended by these things. And and the limited, in fact, I've looked at this in the context of defamation the limited academic evidence we have is that people aren't that quick to be offended and people aren't that no. quick to judge. Um, and they're actually much more skeptical of, of, you know, what someone like Israel Folau puts on his Instagram post than, than the, 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 the professional warriors would have you say. Yeah. Most people, I, I, I'm be willing to bet most Australians wouldn't care about this. Um, and that's why I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of the quote unquote, um, you know, LGBTQ community. It's like an identity is not a community. For starters, and it's just this idea of lumping all these diverse people together into a community, and you have someone saying, "On behalf of this community, I am outraged." I've always been uncomfortable with that. Um, the other part of the story I just wanted to bring up, and I think this was very brilliantly um, outlined in Morgan Begg's recent article on this in in um, in the SMH, was the fact that Qantas is the major sponsor of of Rugby Australia, and they pushed for Israel Flau to be um, for Israel Flau to be fired. And of course, Morgan points out that. Qantas is hypocritical. It has a parlor air, a partner airlines uh, with Qatar and, and Emirates who are owned and operated by uh, regimes, uh, Qatar and Dubai governments. And, and they don't exactly have a very tolerant view of, of homosexuals. So I think that the other part of this is big companies that are, are very illiberal and hypocritical and they need to be called out for this. I think one position that we can come to, and this is, this is my view, is that contract law is paramount in, in this case, in almost all cases, because we wouldn't want to be taking away people's ability to sign a contract that they believed is in their interest. So we wouldn't want the government to override that. But I can, that that's my public policy perspective, but I can be deeply uncomfortable with a contract that you might choose to sign. And if you chose to sign away your, your, your rights to speak your mind, to the right to give religious views, I will defend your right to sign that contract, but I will be deeply uncomfortable with the fact that you'd be willing to do so yeah and this is place. this is because it's a kind of a collective action problem the more people who sign contracts that normalize the idea that their employer will set aside basic liberties like their religious expression the more that becomes normalized so when we talk this is the same dynamic when we talk about 
um, whether the outrage is manufactured or not. Yes, of course it's manufactured, but it's also a feedback loop. The more it becomes manufactured, the more it becomes real because people uh, become uh, uh, acculturated, basically, to outrage. They become... Um, they start to identify as the group that was stipulated at the start as being outraged. I'm part of that group, therefore I am outraged, and the outrage becomes real. And this is actually the dynamic, if you want to step up to a really like abstract level, which I love to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. this is, if you don't mind. <laughs> this, is actually, this is actually the, the dynamic that plays out in, in left-wing politics all the time, which is that they want the, the, it looks like word games and it looks like uh, uh, manufactured outrage. But actually what it is is something that sometimes gets called on university campuses conceptual engineering. It's about changing the concepts with which we engage with the world and then when people use your new, improved, more just concept, it becomes the reality because they don't believe that there's any reality independent of the things that we stipulate collectively, politically, through our actions. And that's why all individuals now, all individual actions get policed on the level that they do. Even, that's why even an individual, one rugby player sharing one meme has to be policed because every individual action contributes to or does not contribute to the establishment of new, more just norms. But so you're all individually responsible for your contribution to the collective action, and that is why it's so harsh. But Zach, I mean, you, you sort of hinted at this. Isn't sport different? Isn't part of the brand of something like Rugby Australia or any other sporting code precisely that they're not just showing you people playing the sport, but they're giving you role models? They've, they've imposed some sort of philosophy, some, some implication that children should be following Israel Folau's example. And when Israel Folau gives a different example to the preferred example that they would like, then we've got to stop him. Because otherwise, you know, all our kids will be angry about fornicators as well. Um, I'm a bit sceptical on that. Um, we grew up in earlier eras where we had harder drinking, rougher football players that we admired. And I don't think we necessarily turned out worse because of it. Um <laughs> We've definitely, in your opinion, <laughs> we've definitely identified that there's a difference between uh, between Rugby Australia having the right to um, fire Israel Folau and whether it was right to fire Israel Folau. We don't need government action to prevent them from firing him. We need um, society as a whole, as consumers, and I know I'm the only rugby consumer in this room, but as consumers, we have to stand up and say that this is not acceptable. And particularly when you look at the sort of hypocrisy around the fact that it was specifically because um, Israel Folau was expressing a hardline conservative religious view that he was fired. In another completely different scenario, obviously a different sport, but in the NRL earlier this year, they had the Indigenous All-Stars game and the captain and coach, um, Mal Meninga and Cody Walker, used that as a platform to say that they wanted the Australian national anthem changed. And there was no outcry that they should be fired for politicising a sporting event then. So your answer, though, is that we all individually should contribute to a norm that we like, right? But this is a game that we can't win because we're not pre prepared to coerce our victory in the way that they are. So... 
when you're trying to establish a norm that is negatively framed, you're actually saying, I will, you know, I will refrain from uh, enforcing this norm. Whereas we're up against people who have a very positive vision, positive in like a like the sense of um, it being active, um, as opposed to being good. They've got um, a vision of the ideal world. Yeah. yeah, and they and they will enact it, and they will use coercion, and we we can't win that argument just by saying, well, everyone's individual actions should add up to a, a better norm that we like because we can't actually get people to do that. We can't complete the feedback loop because we won't enforce, we can't enforce the thing that we want because it's negatively framed. So sticking with the theme, uh, yesterday, which was Tuesday, the federal court found that James Cook University had unlawfully sacked Peter Reid. So Peter Reid has been successful in his um, in his legal case against James Cook University, um, hopefully next week we'll be able to get Gideon Rosner on, who's been following the trial in great detail, um, to talk about uh, what this means and some of what went on in the courtroom. But I've just pulled this out from um, some of the news judgments that the judge in this case uh, basically made a big caveat along these lines. See, he wrote that some have thought that this trial was about freedom of speech and intellectual freedom. Media reports have considered that this trial was about silencing persons with controversial or unpopular views. But according to the judge, this trial was purely and simply about the proper construction of a clause in an enterprise agreement. It was a contract question. Now, I'm not sure how much I believe this because the proper construction of the clause was itself about freedom of speech and intellectual freedom, but um, I look forward to hearing from Gideon about that. But how should we think about, I mean, this is a huge success, obviously, for Peter, and I might throw to you, Zach, first. Um, huge success for Peter Ridd. Um, uh, uh, how, sh- how should we think about this success in, in the context of everything that we've been talking about, from WikiLeaks to Israel Folau? Um, well, it's obviously a victory for freedom of speech, but it's a completely different context because this is about a university professor being able to stand up for academic um, criticism, for really scrutinising their colleagues, and also just having a plurality of opinions being voiced by university professors on campus. Um, And that's where I would sort of position this victory is that it's just the beginning Um, because we've won protecting this individual who's um, been working at James Cook University for decades. And that's one of the reasons that was so atrocious how they treated him. But it's one thing to sort of defend um, those few people we have voicing um, minority opinions on campuses these days it's another to ensure the next generation of Peter Rids continue to get employed and that we continue to have that broad academic discussion. Um, it's a bit like the line at the end of the Two Towers movie where Gandalf says the battle for Helm's Deep is over, the battle for Middle-earth is about to begin. This is just the beginning of what <laughs> that, we have to do. That should have been the uh, title of the media release. <laughs> that's really, really poetic. Thank you, Zach. Dan, Dan how do you, how do you um, fall on this? What, what do you think we should take out of the Peter Ridd story? Oh, I agree with Zach. I think it's fantastic, a fantastic win. And we all know, aside from the free speech angle, that he was someone that um, question the, the the common view on climate change and the effect that climate change may or may not have on the Great Barrier Reef. And we all know that he was fired simply because of that reason. Um, so it's important that there are you know open 
open inquiries in, in universities. And this gets to a broader issue and something we talk about at the IPA a lot is, is about the trajectory of universities. And my view is that a university is something that is specifically defined, is defined by certain things that it does, pursuit of truth, open academic inquiry being two such things. And I think when a university is no longer doing that, it's actually not a university anymore. I mean, it couldn't definitionally be said to be a university. And so I actually think there's very strong grounds for um, reassessing the public support that we provide for universities when they're not doing what universities should do. It should be very clear that a university is X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's on that basis that you receive public support. And when you no longer are doing X, Y, and Z, um, that you're, you, you no longer receive uh, public funding. It shouldn't be a carte blanche um, forum for, for taxpayers to be subsidising um, people that are, you know, it's not just, it's, it, universities aren't just a forum for academics to get money from taxpayers to say whatever they want. It actually has to be in, in pursuit of something that is germane to what a university actually is. It's important to note, though, that that's a different argument. I, I agree with this argument, but it's a different argument from the argument that would protect Israel for Laos import employment, right? Because what we're saying is that uh, a university has a particular purpose, particular kind of telos, if you like. Um, it's directed towards, as you say, the discovery of uh, the truth, what is good in the world. Um, and so as part of that function, it necessarily needs to have open inquiry. It needs to be per- permissive of debate. Um, whereas the ARU does not have that purpose. The ARU, the Australian Rugby Union, exists to provide a rugby product for people who want to watch it. <laughs> not to discover truth. Um, and, 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 to, and to field, and to field a, a competitive, hopefully every now and then, rugby team for Australia. That's what it exists for. And, and so Israel Folau's, the defence of Israel Folau's freedom of his re- expression of his religious belief um, is actually uh, separate from the institution of w- in, in which he is involved in a way that Peter Reid's case is not. So Peter Reid's case is actually captured by the institution that he was working at in a way that Israel Folau arguably is not. I think that's an interesting That's contrast. right. But I don't think rugby union owes... Israel for our free speech, but I don't think they can take it from him either. Would be my like rugby union is rugby is for rugby, university is for truth. Yeah, but the rugby union's position, the AIU's position is that they know what is good for rugby, and that having high profile players voice opinions that clash with their sponsors is bad for rugby. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. From I think from a limited government perspective, is that I'm inclined in that case, to agree with them in a way that I'm not inclined to agree with um, James Cook University. I'm inclined to agree that there's some sort of local knowledge about what's good for rugby that I don't have in a way that is not true about James Cook University because I know, we know what a university is by definition. Now then the question becomes, well, it's, it's almost more of an empirical question like Chris said. I mean, do we actually know that Israel Folau's behaviour was bad for rugby, I and mean, you could probably even test it. But the the Peter Reid case actually intervenes uh, in the public debate at a higher level of like this is a you know a, a fundamental institution of a free society, and he has to be able to do this thing at least within the terms of 
his operation as a university employee. So hopefully next week we can get Gideon Rosner to take us through some of the um, complexities and interesting moments in the uh, Peter Reid case as well. Let's move on to our culture and books picks, none of which are books this week. But uh, Dan, we might start with you. You've been listening to a podcast that isn't this podcast. <laughs> yeah. how, how dare you? I have been listening cheating to cheating on us. <laughs> yeah, cheating on you, that's right. Uh, I have been listening to a podcast. It's called uh, The History of England. It's by uh, a man called David Crowther, and um, it's a very interesting podcast, very, very long. So to give you an idea of how long this goes for, the first podcast was in uh, December 2010. Now, he does uh, one every fortnight, so he covers a, a fragment. It's about half an hour every fortnight. So we are now in, what is it, April 2019, and we're only up to 1553. Okay, so it is pretty it's pretty slow going. Um, so this is a life plan for this you. Is a, this is, I mean, yeah, it's going to be – we're not even – Basically any, married to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I'm never going to get to the end. But I, I'm only up to um, uh, Canut the Great uh, around 10, uh, 1016 when he uh, conquered England and became king of uh, Denmark, England, and, and Norway. But it's an extremely interesting podcast. And the reason I like it is because I'm always very interested in where things come from. Like, why do we have parliamentary democracy? Why do we have freedom? Why do we have freedom of speech and these kind of things? So uh, what better thing to do than go back to the to the source? So he starts off with the Anglo-Saxons and basically goes on from there. And you pick up interesting bits and pieces about, about our heritage and about our, our institutions and where they came from. Um, it's also pretty funny to listen to. So it's it, that helps when you're talking about, you know, Canut the Great and, <laughs> and William the Conqueror. So it helps to have a bit of humour. And it's also a really good website that accompanies it. So often he's talking about geographical, uh, you know, when there's when there's a battle or something and you've got no idea where this is. Uh, so you go on the website, it's got great transcripts, great maps, and it's a really good uh, resource, whether or not I'll get to the end. Um, I want to hear what he has to say about Brexit. but It really I'm, depends on how long That won't live, get there until about 2030, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, Zach, you've been um, uh, checking out or revisiting some old documentaries. Yeah, so I've um, sort of used the fact that Netflix recently put Ken Burns' Civil War up on their Australian catalogue um, to revisit it, to look at it again. This is really something I care a lot about. It's one of the reasons I became a historian was because I was so caught up in how evocative um, this particular documentary series is. Um, as a historian, you don't generally like documentary series because they're often a bit like a Peter Fitzsimons book put to film. <laughs> um, but this is this is the exception that proves that it can be done. It's all original material. Even the music is music from the time. There's photos from the time. There's um, pictures of landscapes that haven't changed over the over the sort of 150 years since the Civil War. Um, they have actors reading the primary sources with real passion and authenticity. It's just everything that you want um, in a documentary series. And going back to watch it again, I couldn't help but feel how much it is a product of the time. It was made in the late 80s, released in 1990. I don't think it is something that you could film today. Some of this is purely logistical, so they had... Um, the daughter, the 104-year-old daughter of a slave um, reading slave poetry, and she died before the documentary series even came out, so that's something that would be physically impossible. Um, but as far as having a balanced and nuanced view of the Civil War in the current climate of tearing down Robert E. Lee's statues and these sorts of things, Ken Burns is a left-wing filmmaker he later went on to produce a documentary series about the Roosevelts that's essentially a hagiography. 
Um, but he still very much shows the Southern side. Obviously, he depicts the horrors of slavery and why slavery absolutely had to be abolished. But he also goes into detail about why the South fought, um, why they were willing to sacrifice so much, why poor Southerners who owned no slaves had absolutely nothing to do with the institution of slavery, were still fighting passionately and sacrificing their lives for the Confederacy. And I think that balanced view of history where you try to understand both sides is really important. And I think it is something that we're slowly losing, unfortunately. Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam is also amazing and interesting for a Ken Burns documentary because you have this idea that all those all the Ken Burns stories are um, panning across a black and white photo. But in the Vietnam one, which I highly recommend, it's um, it, we've got a lot of original footage that... that you know, not of that generation that I hadn't seen before. Um, and so many different um, unusual perspectives come out of just being able to see the, the footage of, um, of the war as well. Yeah, he's definitely produced. Um, there's also one that looks at the Second World War just from the perspective of four small American towns and how each of those American towns um, experienced that war. So he's always got a very interesting and unique perspective whenever he tackles a subject um, but for me, the Civil War will always be the original and the best. It will never be surpassed. So, Andrew, uh, what did you watch on Netflix this week, Andrew? Uh, my wife and I have been watching Narcos Mexico, which is the spin-off of um, was one of Netflix's early flagship series. Narcos was a um, exploration of um, you know narco uh, drug traffickers in I was going to say narco traficantes because you know that shows half in English and half Spanish. Um, <laughs> Drug drug traffickers from Colombia in the original series and this spin-off series um, has moved to, to Mexico and it talks about the formation of um, one of the original cartels from Guadalajara. Um, and it's actually, um, you know, un- unusually for a spin-off, it's got like higher production value. Um, they put a lot of money into it. So it's uh, unlike a number of um, sort of cheaper Netflix shows, this one really looks like something they've invested a lot of time and money in and it... Um, it tells a, a, a based on a true story, uh, so not as uh, historically accurate as the last two culture picks, but um, based on a true story about a, a guy named uh, Kiki Camarena, who was a, a DEA agent uh, who set set about trying to bust up this Guadalajara cartel, and it doesn't end well for him. Um, this isn't a spoiler because this is a true story. Uh, you can look it up on the internet. But he was... Um, I, I think what's what's really what like is interesting about this show is that a lot of shows about the drug war and even the earlier series of Narcos had this in them are kind of skeptical about the drug war. They're kind of presented as like there's almost a level of absurdity about the lengths to which the government will go to enforce its drug laws. Right? You, you've actually got the military raiding, you know, farms and things like that. This show does not have that skepticism this show is presented because there's kind of a tragic tale at the center of it about a very good man from the united states just trying to do his job as well as he can and encountering corruption at every turn the show doesn't have that skepticism the show is very much like the da are noble people trying to do a tough job um and and in the end it it, kind of comes out as a little bit conservative and and the portrayal of mexico and its corruption set in the 1980s is is really damning. I mean, it's it's kind of incredible that a show would be in the United States in the current environment, you know, with where like you know presenting the the Confederacy as 
um, something that people fought for in good faith would now be considered alt-right adjacent. It's kind of incredible that this show is as damning of Mexico as it is because you could you could cut this show up and you know, screen it at a Trump rally. <laughs> there, is, there is no greater commendation. Um, so my culture pick is The Art of the Score, which is a podcast about um, uh, about soundtracks, movie soundtracks, um, and apparently video game soundtracks, although I haven't heard them talk about one of those yet. It's done by a group of musicians and film experts based in Melbourne. The reason I'm raising it, I've, I've listened to it for a long time, but the most recent two episodes have been by far my favourite because they've been on the Blade Runner soundtrack by Vangelis and the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack by um, Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish, um, both of which I, I love both those movies, both of which their soundtracks are really interesting, synth-heavy, um, very intense soundtracks, obviously from the Hans Zimmer school. Um, uh, Hans Zimmer is very famous for these thumping, intense soundtracks, but um, but but coming from the Vangelis side of synth um, and so forth. And and I, I love this podcast because they they do break it down. I'm I'm not very musically literate, but they do break down the themes, they do break down the techniques, and they try to recreate some of the sounds either on the piano or in these cases on on these incredibly expensive and complex synths um and it inspired me to watch blade runner 2049 again which i deeply deeply love as a movie and i'm looking at you andrew to to wait for you to object to this no 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 i i, I thought it, i thought it was all right i don't think it quite captured exactly what was great about the first one but i did want to ask you about soundtracks so you come down on the side of um i would guess um having a, a soundtrack designed for a movie um almost like a uh, like a, as a specific piece of music than the approach of mixing in sort of pop songs. I mean, do you have oh, a, absolutely. A no, no. I mean, so, so I think uh, my macro belief about soundtracks, so I, I listen to a lot of soundtracks because I've said this on the podcast before. I do a lot of writing. Um, writing, as we all know, is a really boring thing to do. So you should listen to movie soundtracks because movies are exciting and it makes you feel like you're having fun. Um, so, you know, you're typing some dull thing about freedom. Um, and, uh, but in the background, you're listening to Indiana Jones soundtrack and, you know, and he's fighting Nazis and all that sort of stuff. So that's, that's great fun. But I'm very much of the, um, belief that soundtracks are where classical music has gone and where, um, that genre moved to some of the greatest soundtracks, um, are now being performed, um, by classical orchestras, not just because they're meant to appeal to a new generation of listeners, but also because they are great works of art. And, you know, it, Indiana Jones is a really good example of that. It's done by um, uh, John Williams, and it's, um, it is it is a piece of um, orchestral classical music just that fits into a cool story about an archaeologist who fights Nazis. Um, but that is it for Looking Forward this week. If you are not already a subscriber to Looking Forward, you can follow the podcast in the IPH channels on iTunes, Podbean, or any of the other podcast platforms. And if you're not already listening to the original IPA podcast, the young IPA podcast, the Ur podcast, the one podcast from which we at Looking Forward draw inspiration and the brainchild of our producer, James Bolton, of course, Pete Gregory, make sure you subscribe to that too. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs to support the IPA's, IPA's research. And this podcast, you can join or donate at ipa.org.au. Big thank you to the panellists, Andrew Bushnell. Thanks, Chris. Dan Wild. Thank you. Dr. Zach Gorman. And, of course, our producer, James Bolt. We will be back with more Looking Forward next week.